Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to You now. We know and trust that Your promise that You would give to us Your Spirit so that the Word would be powerful and effective in our hearts and lives is a true and faithful promise. And we ask for that work today so that as we come to the Scriptures, what we do in this hour, though it seems like foolishness to the rest of the world, that we would gather together as Your people to listen to an ancient book, that promise would bear great fruit in our lives and become a reality that it conforms us more and more into the image of Jesus. And we pray all this for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we have begun a new series in the book of Ephesians, and today our Scripture passage is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and you'll find that on page 976 of the Pew Bible. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. As you're turning there, let me tell you that this weekend, Sally and I went back to Columbia to officiate a wedding. Left on Friday, got back late last night, and <clears throat> seen lots of things at lots of different weddings. But as we were waiting for the bride to come down the aisle, the ring bearer and the flower girl came into view as they began walking down the aisle. Both of them were quite young. In fact, I don't think the ring bearer was quite two. And I haven't seen this before, but after he got about three steps down the aisle, he took the pillow in hand and he threw it as far down the aisle as he possibly could. And the flower girl looked at him and thought, well, if you can do that, then I can run around. So she began to run around and the coordinator of the wedding scooped her up and the mother scooped up the little ring bearer and away they went. Weddings are often eventful. And they're also filled with lots of celebrations, a lot of pageantry, a lot of extra things on the side that sort of fill them out. Unfortunately, one of the things that happens in weddings is that so much focus and attention is given to all the extras that the central matter of a man and a wife being joined together in holy matrimony before the Lord gets pushed to the side and is no longer seen in its clarity. Well, just like we need to have our vision raised a bit beyond the celebrations and pageantry of a wedding to see the substance of it, the Apostle Paul, in a way, has already elevated our vision and our understanding of the Gospel above the noise of the world so that we can see and hear and understand very clearly the great blessings that we have in Jesus. It's what he has done in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, praising and blessing God for all that he's given to us in Jesus. Now, what comes after that? Well, what if you were to complete this sentence? Worship or praise to God leads to blank. Could be a lot of things that you could put in that blank. For Paul, it's a life of prayer. A life of prayer. When you begin to take in everything that Jesus has done, then you naturally turn to him in prayer. And that's where we pick up here in verse 15. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you 
remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. From what I understand, there are particular medical conditions in which a person's body is not able to absorb certain nutrients from the food that they eat. No matter how much they eat, they're not able to take in some of the vitamins and the minerals and the healthy things that are in the food that they need. And what is required is some extra medication so that when they take that medication, their body is able to absorb the nutrients that they need so that they can grow healthy and strong. Well, the Word of God is the spiritual food that we need, isn't it? We've seen already in Ephesians that it tells us of the great blessings that we have in Jesus. But we need the ability to receive those things, to take them in, to be fed by them, to be nourished by them, so that we grow strong and healthy as believers. How do we take them in? Well, one of the key ways that we do, aside from faith, is simply by prayer. We begin to take in all that Jesus has for us when we begin to pray to Him according to all that He has given to us and all that He's done for us in Jesus. And here in Paul's usual style as he writes to particular churches, he begins by introducing himself, begins by speaking of the blessings of the Gospel, and then he begins to turn to prayer and tell them some of the things that he has been praying for them so that they would know how they ought to pray as well. Prayer is a key for us if we are going to begin to take in and receive all that Jesus has for us. And Paul models this kind of prayer life that we ought to have in the Gospel. And the first thing that he shows to us is that we ought to be praying prayers of thanksgiving. Prayers of thanksgiving. He says in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He says, for this reason, because I've heard great things of your faith and of your love, I do not cease to give thanks to God for you. Without ceasing, Paul is praying and giving thanks to God for all the blessings that they are receiving and that they are displaying in their life of faithfulness and this thanksgiving operates in two ways one by direct praise to God direct praise to God Paul thanks God for the works that he is doing in other words the grace that he is working in them 
so that they are becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus. See, when we're filled with grace, what happens is it begins to evoke praise in us and thanksgiving in us for what God is doing in other people. In other words, a life of gratitude begins to grow up as we recognize and see the marks of God upon people's lives. Now, by nature, we're people of ingratitude. Ingratitude. Not giving thanks for what we receive. Oftentimes, that's simply because we have the posture of feeling like we deserve it. We deserve what comes to us. We deserve the blessings that we have. And therefore, we go without giving thanks to God for all that He gives to us because we don't recognize just what cost He paid in order to give us these things. Because every blessing that we have is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because He was broken and shed upon the cross that we receive any kind of blessings from God. And so Paul here recognizes that and begins to give thanks to God for everything that has been given to them. I remember going on mission trips to various third world countries and there seemed to be such a grateful and thankful spirit in people who really had nothing. I remember giving a hammer to a, a man who was a carpenter. We had taken tools so that we could build something while we were there and we took tools that we could purposely leave and just giving a hammer to him so that he could actually do his work better filled him with a sense of gratitude because he recognized, I don't deserve this. These people didn't have to come here. They didn't have to give us gifts but because they were received in that posture. He was filled with a sense of gratitude. Friends, by thanking God, we learn to be grateful people. You can't actually receive the blessings of the gospel unless you're giving thanks to Him for them. Unless you recognize, I don't deserve these things, but I, I begin to recognize all that Jesus gives to me and I want to praise Him, I want to give thanks to Him for all of these things. It's very similar in... Marriage counseling, it's a very common practice for a counselor or a minister to find a couple in his office. And that couple has grown out of love for one another. They don't appreciate one another anymore. And a very simple, easy thing to do is to ask them to begin to write out a list of all the things that at least initially they were thankful for when they got married. So that as they looked at this list, they could see there are wonderful things about my spouse and they begin to give thanks for them and tell the other person, thank you for being this way. Thank you for doing these kinds of things. An amazing thing happens. They, their hearts begin to be knit together because they begin to appreciate one another for who they really are. And the same thing is true for the people of God when we give thanks and praise to God and appreciate Him for the gifts that He's given. Our hearts begin to be knit to Him more and more is your prayer life dominated by a sense of urgency over the emergencies in life or is it dominated by thanksgiving to God for the blessings that he's given to you it's a great question to ask yourself do you spend more time in prayer giving thanks to God 
for what He has done in the people around you, in your own life, for the, the things that He has provided with, uh, you with, the, the protection that He's given to you. Does that dominate your prayer life? Because when it does, what happens is your heart begins to be knit to God in a very profound way. Because when you give prayers of thanksgiving, it breaks open new joys. As you begin to celebrate God, as you begin to celebrate His grace, and what happens is your mind then begins to be filled with more and more things that He has given to you. More and more ways that He has blessed you. So that after a while you find that you can't stop praying because there's more to thank Him for. And soon your heart begins to grow in love for God in ways that you had not expected as you're conscious of His great gifts. And so there's a Direct praise to God, but also indirect encouragement to God's people. In verse 15, he says, it's for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints. Paul thanks God because of something that's taking place in the church. Their faith in Christ and their love toward the saints. Two of the New Testament ethics that Paul is constantly praising the church for. Faith, hope, and love. And he's recognizing that faith and love are being worked into this church and they're expressing them by the way that they live their lives. And so he's giving thanks to God for his work in others. And that becomes a very powerful leaven in the life of the church. When people know that you are giving thanks to God for the graces that he's displaying in them. When we went back this weekend for the wedding, we were driving around town and as we got closer to the university where the church is and the wedding and the reception, there were various restaurants and meeting places where I can recall having specific conversations with students around the Word of God. And some of those students were actually at the wedding and those have often been times for us of encouraging them and recognizing the grace that's been worked into their lives over the years as now they're married and some of them have children and they're living faithfully in the church and in their jobs and in their marriage and in the community. Great opportunity for us to give thanks to God for what He's done through the ministry there. And a great opportunity to encourage them and to say, I'm proud of you. Look at where you are today. Remember that place you were and those conversations of doubt that you had. And look at you today because of God's grace to you. And you see, when we begin to thank the Lord for His grace to people and recognize that before them and say, I'm proud of you, becomes a great leavening agent in the church to stir everyone up to faith and good deeds, as Paul says. You know, when we first came here, one of the things that we recognized about this church is the faith in the Lord Jesus. That even though this church had been through hard and difficult times, that God could still do something glorious and great here. And another thing that we noticed was the love that people had for one another. Love towards the saints, as Paul says. A love that visitors often recognize and probably the thing that I hear from visitors when they comment 
is they recognize how welcome they feel, how much love and joy there is among the people here. And friends, you need to know that. You need to see and recognize that God in His grace is working powerfully here and that there are people who are giving thanks for your faith and for the love that you have for one another. And so there's an indirect way in which it's a great blessing to the church. And friends, what we ought to be doing is thanking God more and more. Because you see, when we're thanking Him for His blessings, then what happens is it begins to make room in our heart for Him more and more. And all those blessings that Paul has spoken of earlier in chapter 1 have room to flood in and fill us so that we want to thank Him and praise Him all the more. And so he speaks of prayers of thanksgiving, but also here, prayers of spiritual growth. Prayers of spiritual growth. He says in verse 16 that he is remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He speaks of remembering the people. Remembering them, literally, to make mention of them before the throne of grace. So Paul is taking the people with him before God's heavenly throne. Remembering them, making mention of them, thanking God for the work that he's doing in them. It's a work of intercession. And why? What's the goal? He's remembering them. That, he says in verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him that you might know Him. That's what He longs for. Spiritual growth because we know God. And what He says here when He's praying that the, Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom of revelation. It might better be translated as a spirit with the capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit, because He's the one who gives wisdom. He's the one who gives revelation, or here, illumination of what He has revealed to us. So Paul is asking that God give the Holy Spirit to the church that they might grow in the wisdom and the knowledge of God, so they might grow in faith and have a great blessing from Him. That's interesting that Paul, writing from prison, most likely in Rome, and writing to people in Ephesus, as we have seen, who are in many ways overshadowed by the great temple to the false god Artemis. A temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world. And they have been marginalized and pushed to the periphery of their society because they no longer join in that pagan idolatry. So Paul writing from prison, writing to people who are under the oppression of the occult in the temple. And what his chief prayer for them is, is that they would know God. Now you might think it might be for some practical matter. But that's not what Paul's concern is. Because Paul's concern for them is that they know God. Paul knew that the struggles of life, no matter how difficult they are, and they are difficult, that the greatest, the greatest thing that we need 
is to know God above everything else. And then in knowing God, everything else is put into perspective. And so his prayer for them is that they would grow in this knowledge of God. And when we begin to intercede for ourselves and for others, we begin to love the work that God is doing in people. That we want spiritual growth for ourselves and for other people. That we want to know God better and better. And as we pray for spiritual growth, then we notice that something begins to change in us. We find that we treasure knowing God. We treasure it because we treasure Him. Before long we realize that what is most important to us is not that God would fix our situations. Though in His grace sometimes He does. But most importantly, He would be present in our situations so that we would know Him in the midst of those things. This is the way that the psalmists often speak Yes, they pray for relief, but what do they do? They, they begin to attach knowledge of God and wed it to the truth of their situation. And what they long for the most is God to be present with them in the midst of all of those things. And Paul knows that. And he's saying, though I write from prison and though I write to people who are marginalized in society, what I want for you most is the very thing that Jesus wants most for us. That we actually know God and grow in Him. Friends, I think we pray most of all for good physical health. That probably dominates our prayer life more than anything else. And that's a good and right thing to pray for. But really, there's a whole nother level of spiritual intimacy with God when we begin to look beyond the circumstances for which we are praying. And we begin to long to be with God in His presence and to know Him that all the treasures of His grace, all the glorious pictures of His character that we find in Scripture, that those are the things that we long for the most. And that if we have Him, we have everything. And so Paul here prays for spiritual growth, and then finally he prays for spiritual eyesight. Spiritual eyesight. Paul tells us what happens when the Spirit is given. He says in verse 18 that he prays that they would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In other words, there's a need for spiritual eyesight to see things clearly as they are. In a way, you might say it's spiritual cataract surgery. That what God is doing is removing the cataracts from our eyes so that we can now see the graces of the gospel clearly and rejoice in them and glory in them. So often our vision is clouded by, by sin, by fears, by doubts, by the allurements and the messages of the world that we don't see the Scriptures clearly. And so he prays for the Spirit to be given because it's the Spirit and the Spirit only who is the one who knows the mind of God and who can illuminate the Scriptures to us so that we know God too. So he's praying here for spiritual eyesight. Paul himself experienced this in a dramatic fashion, didn't he? When he was on the road 
And Jesus came to Paul in a great vision, blinding light. And Paul began to see clearly who Christ is. And that his whole life had been bent towards persecuting Jesus and His church. Now he sees that Jesus is a God of grace and He's willing to pour out blessings upon Paul that he doesn't deserve. Mercies upon mercies. And Paul knows what it means to be given spiritual eyesight. And so he's praying that for the church that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. And what do we see? He says three things very quickly. One, a vision of hope that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. The hope to which He has called you. Now hope is forward looking, isn't it? And then this context, it is looking forward to the glorious promises that have been given in Jesus. Promises of being declared righteous in His sight. Promises of being adopted as a child of God. Promises of being conformed to His image. Promises of one day being glorified. And the hope of this call is that we realize one day all of these things will reach their climax and find their fruition and come to their fullness. Hope is forward looking in all of these things. And hope in the Christian life is what we need. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of drudgery, in the midst of impatience, we need a sense of hope. Because even though all things are possible with God, not all things are easy in this life. And you know that to be true. Not all things are possible, but not all things are easy. And it's when we have hope in what is to come that we're able to bear up under whatever God gives to us. Because we're forward-looking people. Well, not only are we forward-looking in terms of hope, but we also have a vision of our inheritance that is to come. He says here in verse 18, not only that we would know what is the glorious, this hope, but what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. This glorious inheritance. That one day we'll see God. That one day we'll understand in its fullness what it means to be His great treasured possession that we'll receive a glorified body, that we'll be purified of our sins, that our relationships will be reconciled to one another, that we'll know and understand ourselves as we really are and what our place in the world is. What a glorious inheritance that we have that is to come. And Paul says, I want you to know this. I want you to see a whole new life with God. In other words, The kingdom come that we pray every week. Thy kingdom come. That is our inheritance in glory. Paul wants us to know it and to see it clearly. He wants us to do so so that we'll live in this world for the world to come. In other words, we're not living for this world because it's temporal, but we're actually living for something that we cannot see yet. We're living for something that we can't see Like a businessman who goes to an empty lot and he says, now this is one day going to be my business. I'm going to build a building here. And I'm going to hire employees. And I'm going to market my product. And I'm going to build a business. And in a similar fashion, that's what's 
taking place as we as Christians go out into the world saying, we're going to labor and work for what we do not yet see. Went to New Orleans one time on a mission trip. And a man by the name of Mo Lebret had gone there 13 years prior to the Ninth Ward of New Orleans, at one time the murder capital of the world. He moved in with his family. There was nothing there by way of a ministry. And he simply said, I'm going to make myself available to God and see what happens. Friends, that's the kind of vision that we ought to have as we're living for an inheritance that we do not yet see, but what we want is for that inheritance to be working now in this world so that the kingdom is coming now, everywhere that we go, bearing fruit. What kind of investment are we making in the kingdom of God now as we begin to see what kind of kingdom it will be in glory? What vision do we have in terms of evangelism? In terms of spreading the gospel with people that we know. In terms of serving children. Possibly with a backpack ministry. Giving food to children who do not have food at home when they go home on weekends. And so backpacks filled with food are given to them. Or maybe it's tutoring in the local schools. Maybe it's sending letters to chaplains or our troops overseas. Encouraging them and trying to bear witness to the gospel. In other words, are we looking to see what could be, what could be, if God begins to build His kingdom more and more through us? So we need to have this vision of this glorious inheritance, but also a vision of the power of God. Verse 19 through 21 says this, final thing, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power? Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great, uh, great might that he worked in Christ. He speaks of this immeasurable, great power of God, which he worked when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion over every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And notice how this power operates or for whom it operates. He says it's an immeasurably great power toward us. And in verse 22, he says, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, Jesus' rule is for the church. So that the church would flourish. So that the church, as it goes out as the instrument of the kingdom of God, would bear fruit in the world. So that the church would be protected as we are filled with the fullness of Christ. The power of God is at work here in our midst. And friends, as we begin to pray for a vision of that power, leads us to courage courage to step forward and do things things that are outside what we thought were comfortable things outside of what we thought were possible for us to do let me say this this is extremely important to understand the power 
of God in the gospel, the power of God in the gospel is not limited by our understanding of it. God's power is not limited by how much we understand it. But our service to God is limited by how much we believe in the power of God. If we don't believe it, then we won't go forward in serving Him. And so Paul recognizes that and he says, I want to pray that you understand this immeasurable greatness of the power that's at work in Him. Just like the people of God who were just about to be destroyed by Pharaoh's army. And they cried out to Moses, why did you bring us out into the desert to be destroyed? And Moses said, now wait a minute. This is happening so that you'll see the greatness of the power of God. And he parted the Red Sea. Friends, we need to pray for a vision of the power of God at work in us and through us. So that we will be able to be those kind of people who not only know that power, but experience that power living lives for His glory. There was a haystack prayer meeting in 1806. And in that meeting, a group of five students from Williams College in Massachusetts got together. They had met in a grove of trees. They had a heart for missions. They wanted to go over to Asia and they wanted God's blessing. A thunderstorm grew up. And so they took refuge in a haystack in a particular field there. And as they did, they began to pray for God's blessing, for His provision, that He would pour out His grace so that they could go forward in missions into Asia. Well, within four years of that gathering, some members established the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. And in 1812, it began to send forward missionaries into India. During the 19th century, sent missionaries to China, Hawaii, other nations in Southeast Asia, establishing schools, hospitals around those nations, missionary works, translating the Bible into various languages, some languages that had not even been invented yet. All because they gathered together and prayed for the power of God. Friends, if we want to be able to receive the blessings of God, and if we want to be able to go out into the world and live courageously for God, then what we need more than anything else is to pray to God, thanking Him for all that He's given to us, asking for real spiritual growth, and giving us spiritual eyesight we might see things clearly as they are. Otherwise, we're overcome by the world. All the background noise out there begins to take hold. But when we're people of prayer, then all that God has for us comes front and center. And we begin to live in it. And we begin to live for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do turn to You and ask for You to receive our thanks. You have given us far more privileges than we could ever imagine and certainly that we deserve. And Father, You have blessed us with knowing You and we pray that that would grow so that we would know You increasingly.
And Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might clearly see the hope to which we've been called, the great inheritance that we have in the saints, and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we would know him and live for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.